0: This is the Libertarian podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, as we close out 2021, I thought we could get your scorecard on President Biden's first year in office. As you note in your column this week, the president's approval ratings, which started in the mid 50s, are now in the low 40s after just one year. There's a lot of topics to to get through. I wanted to start with the president's record on the economy and federal spending. I think you'll recall at the beginning of this year we started with the well, he started with the American Rescue Plan in March, so 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus spending bill, increase the child tax credit, extended unemployment insurance, a few other things, and now we're still debating the Build Back Better bill, which is not been passed yet, and keeps getting degraded uh, a, a little bit. How would you grade him on,
1: on his fiscal policy? Well, it's either a D or an F as far as I'm concerned, but uh, this is a, a philosophical dispute as well as a particular dispute with him. There are two ways that you could try to stimulate any economy. The first of those ways is to put in a series of new spending programs coupled with a system of tax programs, hoping that the spending gains will more than exceed the losses associated with the tax. But none of this stuff is actually a zero-sum transfer. The moment you raise taxes, you create an excess burden, which reduces output on the production side. Then when you spend the money, you're spending it by the federal government, and there's no guarantee whatsoever that they're going to spend it in a sensible way because they don't monitor the way in which the people who receive it get it. So if you get a loan and it's guaranteed by your father or mother for an educational transaction, they're going to make sure that you go to school. You get it from the United States government, they're not going to be able to look at a 100,000 of these things. So just taking, for example, student debt, uh, that has completely mushroomed since it has become a federal program rather than a program program run by banks and by families. And you could keep, repeat this over and over again with anything else that you want to do. It's all also the case when the money comes at the federal side. It's always going to be attached to various kinds of strings, and most of those things are going to favor one kind of person over another. So one of the things that the president does is he has a very strong pro-union situation, and program after program says, you get this kind of credit if you do it with ordinary people, but if you use a union labor force, the size of the credit starts to double. And what's happening, he's now screwing up the market with respect to, say, uh, global warming and so forth, in order to give a boost with respect to the union. And these kinds of things are not just transfer payments, they're complete losses, because it means that you're subsidizing inefficient modes of production as opposed to efficient modes of production. Uh, When you do it with respect to schools, it's the same kind of thing that's happening. Uh, So when you start talking about uh, grants to education and you look at the fine print, or so I am told, uh, what happens is uh, you're not going to be able to qualify in the same way as you used to be able to do. receiving these grants and aids if you're a religious institution. Either you're going to be excluded entirely or there are going to be lots of new terms and conditions that are going to be imposed upon you. It turns out in the marketplace, religious institutions completely dominate uh, this particular sector because what happens is the church essentially gives a kind of an implicit warranty that these things are going to be done well, whereas the federal government or the state governments give no such warranty. In fact, they kind of give a foreboding that the things are going to be done badly. if you try to knock these things out, then, in effect, what you're going to do is favor the inefficient forms of child care rather than the efficient form. And then you're also going to get yourself a constitutional challenge. There's a recent case called Holy Trinity Church v in which what happened is the united uh, some states tried to have categorical exclusions of religious organizations from certain kinds of grants for which they were otherwise qualified on such princely things as using a rubber compost in order to make uh, uh children's playgrounds a little bit safer than they would otherwise be and the supreme court struck that down uh, the supreme court has also been pretty Consistent to the point that if you give the money to parents and let them spend it on religious or non-religious institutions as they see fit, that's also not a problem under the establishment cause because the parents are an intervention and there can be competition at that level. You look at what's going on, the Biden administration is trying to shut this stuff down. So the second approach is the one that you should take, and it's simply beyond his imagination to do it, is you look at markets which are heavily constrained by regulation, and then you try to figure out which of these regulations you could repeal without imperiling health and safety of the general public at large. And there are a whole host of regulations of the employment market, including labor unions, minimum wage laws, overtime regulations, and so forth, where you'd want to tamp down on this either reverse the flow or not increase it. And what the Biden administration does is they go in the opposite direction. So what you really need to do is to have a program that looks to deregulation. It does two things. It lowers administrative costs, and it also achieves a greater control of private parties handling the way these things start to operate. Uh, This is just not what they're going to do. Uh, So I think it's about as bad as it could possibly be. And I regard the president essentially as an economic illiterate.
0: Let's fast forward um, uh, through the year. We started in March with the, with the American Families Plan. Let's go to, to uh, September with the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, The president did what I think every Democratic uh, presidential nominee has said for years uh, he would do, which is get us out of Afghanistan. Uh, they just announced the other day that there's only about 100 or 200 American citizens still left in Afghanistan with intentions to leave, which they will do soon.
1: How would you grade the president's Afghanistan strategy? Um, I think that one's a cold F. I mean, there are two ways in which to do it. First of all, there's the question of whether you needed to leave at all. And secondly, if you had to leave for some reason, how do you get out? There's no question that Americans lost a large number of lives in the many years that we were in Afghanistan during our longest war, which essentially started in one form or another as far back as 2001. Uh, But those losses were in the past. Uh, If you looked at the numbers, as Tim Kaine has done, um, over the last year or so, there are virtually no American deaths. Essentially, what happens is the American force is down to about 2,500, maybe 5,000, depending on how you count. Uh, It does two things. It provides um, on-time intelligence and a low-level air support, and all the groundwork is done by the Afghanistan troops. And it turns out that in the height of the battle season, which is essentially from spring through the, through the fall, uh, the American flight forces were doing pretty well. It's not as though they were in danger of any kind of problem. Well, Biden comes along and he says he wants to get out, and he only cares about strategic interests, not symbolic interests, rather. Can I get out before uh, September 11th, 2021, so I could do this in under 20 years? Then he even pushes it forward 10 days to give him a margin of error. He withdraws the support that he's given. He withdraws the logistics. He withdraws the air support and so forth, and the entire army cumbles in days. As somebody said, if he just had the sense uh, to wait until winter, when everybody was back in the cave, they could have had this thing done correctly. Um, he thought that the uh, Kabul would hold out for at least months, which is, of course, not the way you want to do this thing, and it held out for hours. Even the New York Times ran a bunch of stories, which explain how utterly bankrupt his policy turned out to be. So he didn't know how to execute it. Then he compounds the problem when he announces that it's a success. And one of the things that's a success is he's inviting not only repression against women and children and various kinds of dissidents, it seems as though we're headed for a form of mass starvation and famine, which may take as many as a million lives during the winter that's coming up in Afghanistan. Congratulations, Mr. President. What you do is you take 2,500 people out of Afghanistan when they're not in the line of fire, and you commit uh, probably a Hundred more people to an ugly death. I just regard this as morally reprehensible. And the fact that he cannot understand that when you make commitments to a nation, either you follow through on these things or you become a laughingstock. Well, he says, I could redeploy these troops somewhere else, but he's not interested in re- deploying troops in any sensible way. Uh, he has to face very serious problems in the Ukraine, very serious problems with Iran all the way up and down the line, very serious problems with Taiwan and in the South China Sea and so forth, and with the Russians here, there, and the other place. And essentially, everybody who looks at him, regards him as a sap uh somebody who could always be rolled because he is always determined to make sure that he can avoid a confrontation. And the only way you can avoid a confrontation is to make absolutely mindless kinds of concessions, which is what it is that he is doing. And so his foreign policy is completely adrift. As far as I can tell, Anthony Blinken is a total loser in his ability to sort of project American images overseas. And he's constantly making deals to placate his enemies rather than to back up his friends. Well you're given the wrong incentives. If you reward your enemies and you punish your friends, you're going to have more enemies than friends. They don't seem to be able to understand that in this particular administration. So I regard this as a crying shame. Um, and this is even more important than the domestic stuff because innocent lives are going to be taken. You invest in a foreign country, and then you pull the plug on them. You bear a very heavy moral responsibility for the dislocation and chaos that you left behind.
0: Let's talk energy policy and and climate policy, because not long after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the president was off in Glasgow for COP26, the climate change conference. Uh, Richard, I'll note, upon returning, he was faced with, well, we've had dramatically higher gas prices, which is when he asked OPEC to increase the supply. And he did release a small amount from the United States Strategic Petroleum Reserves in an effort to lower gas prices a little bit. How do you reconcile you know, trying to mitigate CO2 emissions and the desire for lower gas prices? How, how's he doing on energy policy?
1: Well, I think it's, again, it's probably a low D or, or a solid F. I mean, I regard the man as an utter incompetent when it comes to just about everything. So you're not going to get a lot of variety in the answers, I'm sorry <laughs> to say. I mean, I, this is not a laughing matter. It's a tragic matter. Well, the first of all, he's basically has taken the view that uh, we want to switch this world over from fossil fuels to electric energy, and he thinks he could do it much more rapidly than you can. And he thinks it's appropriate to set long-term American foreign policy by existing by issuing executive orders today, which he hopes will have a binding effect on the executive branch as far forward as the next thirty years. I regard that as utterly irresponsible and completely indeterminate because if it's done by executive order without congressional imprimatur, there are two risks that you face. One is somebody is going to be able to sue and say, you've simply gone beyond the appropriate scope and you can't do this by executive order whatsoever. Or two, if it turns out that the Republicans take over in 2024, which I think is highly likely, what they're going to do is they're going to repeal all of these executive orders and put something into place. So the great danger of an executive order or an administrative guidance is it exposes you to enormous flip-flops when it comes to a change in administration. If you could do it through legislation and have decent traditional interpretation, at least you get some stability of expectation, even if it turns out that you're back in the wrong part. The second thing is, why is he so utterly hostile to fossil fuels? Uh, The name of the particular game is to figure out how it is that you will lower harmful emissions with having the smallest disruption of current policy. Um, If you're trying to bet yourself on the solar energy and the wind energy, what you have to do is to conceive of a way in which you're going to take these two sources, both of which are spotty, heavily subsidized with all sorts of collateral consequences their own, and you're going to have to try to increase their... A performance by ten or twenty fold over the next several years, it is simply logistically impossible for anybody to wean an economy which is built on fossil fuels with that kind of a dramatic consequence and you know people are going to start talking about it but it 's a sham to some extent so we 're going to have more electric, you know, electrical cars um, electronic vehicles and so forth well they 'll go to a charging station. How is that charging station going to receive its power answer it 's going to get it through fossil fuels so it 's not as though when you start adding in electronic vehicles or electrical vehicles that you 're going to find yourself without fossil fuels uh, they 're going to just simply move one step further removed from the consumer and these things are much more expensive to provide unless you give enormous amounts of subsidy and as we say time and time again, solar energy doesn 't work when the sun doesn 't shine and wind energy doesn 't work when the wind does not blow uh, whereas fossil fuels are much more compressed fuel they work all the time so what 's the correct strategy well you start looking at the decline in the associated with coal and the decline in the total level of coal production by about 50 percent since 2010. You look at the rise of natural gas. You look at the improvement in every relevant dimension that's associated with fracking. So what you do is, in effect, if you can eliminate over half of the dangers in the next five years associated with both of these modes of production, that's going to be far more efficient in terms of the overall global situation than trying to increase um, from 2 to 4% or from 3 to 6% some combination of wind and solar. And so they're just looking at the wrong places for these kinds of savings. Then, of course, what happens is carbon dioxide, if it is a problem, is a global problem. It's not as though anything that comes out in the United States is going to be worse than anything that comes out in Russia. So when you say to them, please increase your production, what you're saying was we would rather have inefficient Russian producers and OPEC producers produce carbon dioxide instead of doing it ourselves. The idea is that somehow that will get the taint off of our particular hand. What we then do is we essentially tie this into the geopolitical political situation. And you're going to see large numbers of people in Western Europe who are going to be held prey to the high supplies that come from Putin. When what you ought to do is to essentially eliminate uh, the various restrictions on fracking and exports uh, that are now put into place or about to be put into place by the Biden administration. So they got that completely backwards, upside down. Then what they do is they release Oh, it's a great achievement. They release enough energy to cover two or three days of American consumption. This is not a solution. It's a joke. And then what they do is they decide to have an investigation taken by the FTC to see whether or not there's collusion in this particular industry. I mean, I've written about this. There is no way in God's earth that you could run collusion with an industry which has so many big producers and so many varied grades of crude oil and so many different local legislation that you could actually come up with a benchmark price that will equilibrate energy for all of these sources OPEC can't even do this for its own membership particularly well. And so what they do is they never try to equilibrate price. What they do is they give quotas to efficient and inefficient producers alike. And what happens is when the prices are high, uh, the inefficient producers can make a living. When they're low, they have to shut down. It's a highly inefficient way of doing business. But the thought that if OPEC can't handle this, that the rest of the world can do it by winking and nodding in some particular way is just an absurdity. And so what you do is you now get going after wild goose chases in an effort to have a populist blame against these oil companies uh, so that the current situation is market forces have done their work when prices go down. Cartels have done their work when prices go up. Everybody knows essentially that it's the all the bad stuff is a result of collusion. All of the good stuff is resulting of uh, outside market forces. So putting all this together, I think the man again gets a cold flunk. I just do not believe that he even understands what's going on. And if you read his letter, explaining why it is that these things move in rough correlation, it becomes clear that this man is prepared to wreck an industry with hundreds of billions of dollars in revenues based upon one wrong sentence, which erroneously characterizes the extremely complicated transitions that take place from crude oil on the one hand to refined gasoline around the globe on the other. All right. Lightning round here, Richard.
0: I want some predictions for 2022. It's a big, to- big, big topic. Oh, we're a uh, tough guy. Oh, absolutely. Russia and Ukraine. Russia's got, what, 90,000 troops on the border of Ukraine right now. Are
1: they going to invade, annex some more? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think they don't want to have the problem of uh, essentially occupying a hostile company and facing a, a guerrilla war. But I think what they will do is they will try to exact a pound of flesh from Ukraine. Uh, that could be get out of NATO, for example. Don't take any arms from the West if you wish to us to keep clean. Make sure that Soviet-backed candidates are allowed to run and to take seats in their parliament. Um, I think the only thing that the United States can do is what they have to do in Formosa and so forth. We have to send troops to make it clear that we are treating this an attack on them as an attack on us. Remember, Article 5 of NATO has exactly that. It says that attack on any one member nation is deemed as an attack on all, and we will all respond cooperatively until the UN comes in, which today means never, given the fact that the Soviets or the Chinese will exercise some kind of a Uh, beta. But I don't the same question chances. on
0: China and Taiwan, that China and Taiwan, I mean, we they've, China's, you know, basically taking Hong Kong back, same thing, right? But it's not, Taiwan's not a part of NATO, and it's a, a, a much
1: different. Yeah, a different situation. geopolitical situation, but you, you have to back them. I mean, you know, Taiwan is the chip capital of the world, amongst other things. It's an absolute tribute. Uh, to why it is that a market-based system is infinitely superior to the repressive form of socialism that the, uh, the Chinese Communists put into place? That uh, they want to invade it for the same reason in part they invaded Hong Kong. The moment these places are prosperous, it shows the utter bankruptcy of the system that they have. So, if you could, ex- ex- you know, literally exterminate the competitor, you're going to be fine. Uh, I can tell you, when I was 1965, when I was a student, I went to West Berlin and East Berlin, and it changed my life uh you saw what happened in east berlin and you saw what happened in west berlin it was boomtown in one area and the most depressing coke um overpressively grim uh, impoverished nature on the other side of the line and so you, you know they're trying to kill hong kong so as to make the rest of china look better and i think they're going to do to try to do the same thing i would not put it past the Chinese to actually stage an invasion. Um, I don't think uh, they are quite going to be as as tactful as the other. And, you know, Mr. Xi or whatever that man's name is, has really gone from being a petty tyrant to becoming a world threat. And you have against him a president who simply does not know what he's doing, uh, aided by a secretary of state who, as best I can tell, is a complete loser. I do remember reading somewhere that in 2015, when he was up for secretary of the army, it was none other than John McCain, who really does have a grasp of international military politics, who opposed the appointment on their grounds that he was incompetent. And now you see this guy, six years later, being spiffed off again and being put forward. But he's just not the person to leave anything that we have uh, going on. So again, we're back in D to F territory uh, with respect to this issue.
0: Uh, last prediction, 2022. Further stimulus. It does Build Back Better get passed, and do we see another round of, of <coughs> checks and, and unemployment insurance and, uh, and other things uh, passed?
1: I don't think it's going to get passed. I don't think they're going to be able to take mansion. Um, and get him to move. And I think one of the reasons why he's going to do that is there are people behind him, like Sim and maybe one or two other moderate Democrats, uh, so that if he were to peel off, one of them, I think, would start to step up. Uh, my guess is that what they're trying to do is to say, look at all the wonderful things that we have, and then when the, that proposal, and then when things start to go south again in 2022, they'll be able to say it was the fact that the Republicans managed to stonewall this bill with the eight, one renegade Democrat. My Fondest wish is that uh, Mansion becomes a Republican. Uh, I understand that there are reasons why he doesn't want to be one. Uh, but as far as I can see now, his differences with the Democratic Party are much more profound than those with the Republican Party. If he switches parties, my guess is his electoral majority goes up by ten points because you'll no longer have to split tickets to vote for him. But I don't think that they're going to get this thing through. And as far as I can see, you know, you didn't mention COVID and so forth, uh, but. I'm just going to mention one sentence. I had a debate with one of the Biden advisors, and they assured me that Joe Biden knows how to handle COVID. And if we all wear masks outdoors for 100 days, this problem will go away. Uh, Masks are generally useless. Wearing them outdoors is probably harmful. Getting rid of this stuff is extremely difficult because I'm going to let you in on a dirty secret. This is not a pandemic which comes and goes. Given the way in which it's been handled, it's endemic. We are going to see cycles like this to the indefinite future. And the really grim situation is the longer that we insist upon general quarantine, the more likely there's going to be an unprotected population with or without vaccines that's going to be hit by the next strand of this stuff. It turns out that mutations are quite possible in this area, although 18 months ago, we were sure that they were not. But they've already happened. If you look at the curves, they're constantly cyclical. It peaked on April 8th and then in May. And you're going to see peak and valley, peak and valley, unless you completely change policies. I think many more deaths will be attributable to the kind of government policies that we have. And again, a cold death. I think Mr. Faust, the cdc the fda and the president uh, know nothing whatsoever about what they're doing and at this particular point it's not a prediction i think it's an observation to see how all these policies have failed i see no reason to believe that if we double down on failed policies that they will pit pay dirt uh, the next time around
0: you've been listening to the libertarian podcast with richard epstein remember you can read richard's column the libertarian on defining ideas at hoover.org each week If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit
1: hoover.org.